Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. On this episode of In the Know, I've got the legendary founder of Arbonet, Alex Mashinsky, a communications and networks entrepreneur who also founded the first Uber. Alex, thank you uh, for joining me on uh, In the Know, which is my series um, meeting interesting people doing the work that I do. I'm a startup founder, started lots of different companies. We'll talk about it a little bit. And um, the one I run right now, Notel, uh, runs offices all around the world. We have a couple hundred buildings in seven cities and we serve many fabulous CEOs or divisions or departments of very large enterprises and, and growth companies. And I've been noticing that I bump into really fabulous people, either directly in my work because they've put their company at Notel or just traveling the world of entrepreneurship. And sometimes I just kind of get curious about someone and I reach out to them like I did to you, Alex Mashinsky, who I consider um, a legend, if only for what you did uh, with Arbonet. But um, I want to hear, hear more uh, about your stomach churning adventures these days. Um, so thank you. Welcome. Yeah. Sure. No, I don't know how you introduce yourself. Alex, do you introduce yourself this way? Hey, I started Arbonest. Bow down. No, not, a, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I, I, uh, it, it's not about what you did in the past. It's what you're going to do in the future. You know, like, uh, uh, I think uh, it's great to have uh, successes and uh, tribulations in the past. But uh, I think... Um, you know, every day you wake up and it's about what you're going to do, you know, to, uh, carpe diem, you know, it's about what you're going to do today, not uh, 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 resting on your laurels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think you uh, uniquely have um, built a variety of different types of businesses uh, already in the past. And so what you bring to what you're doing right now uh, it is uh, quite a lot of story, knowledge, experience, and credibility, of course. And I want to investigate some of this with you, and I want to I want to center in on just exactly the thing you started with, which was stomach churning, um, the moments of of high anxiety and drama in building a business. And in particular, I mean, I guess you've touched a bunch of different types of companies. Perhaps they're quite related in your mind. I don't know if communications technology and uh, inf- and sort of information and trading exchanges are sort of one common theme. But Arbonet, of course, is, I think was the first digital stock exchange, basically. Am I right? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, like so, so basically my all the, kind of the, the common uh, thread across all the, you know, I did basically seven startups before Celsius Network. Uh, the common thread on all of them was uh, basically trying to disrupt this or uh, other industry by coming up with a different business model, a different technology to do the same thing better, cheaper, faster. And um, yeah, but more specific so, than that, right? Because if the common thread is disruption, then then you know ninety percent of venture back companies. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. So uh, yeah. so if you take if you take uh, Arbonet as an example, right? So the disruption vo- was voice over IP. I wrote the original patents for voice over IP in nineteen ninety four, and when I uh, I built the first gateway in nineteen ninety five, and deployed it in Japan and Hong Kong and you know a bunch of other countries, right? So. So we went from uh, carriers, monopolies, effectively like AT&T or KDD, charging three dollars a minute, 
to an alternate uh, service that could run bypassing all the infrastructure that these guys own and providing the service effectively for free, just like we're doing right now. We have a phone call right now that is a VoIP call and is effectively a free call. So, uh, but the idea that this would become the norm and everybody in the world would use VoIP was a crazy idea back in the 90s because AT&T was probably one of the most profitable companies in the United States and they made all their profits from international voice and coming and disrupting that looked like a, a crazy proposition. So uh, Not only because they were like, strong, but because the technology was so weak or it appeared to be in, right. in the and, early and days. I mean, I remember it so well. Yes, exactly. And, and the, the internet network itself was so slow that, uh, you know, it was, it was crazy to think that millions of people can talk at the same time on the internet and the internet would not collapse because the entire internet was a dial-up service on the voice network, right? So uh, people forget that, but everybody used the modem to dial into the internet, you know? Yeah, no, I remember getting my $400 bill from uh, the telephone <laughs> company because I was dialed into AOL too long or something. In the 90s, right, it was quite exactly. ridiculous. Even on landlines, you had limits on how much you could call. Even another phone number that looked like a local number. It, it, the the exactly. capacity and yeah. scale of those networks is a joke compared to what we have now, but at the time, it seemed absurd. And I guess you were in, in, in a cohort of entrepreneurs around voice over IP, um, and, and some of these guys talk, uh, talk, a, bit, uh, talk a bit loudly about uh, you know, their work there, uh, guys like Pulver or uh, Jeff Citron, or, uh, or actually, another guy who's a dear friend of mine, Martin Barshavsky, he must have crossed paths with some of these early sort of voice and long well, distance so I, entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. So I built Martin's uh, first switch. Um, and I can tell you, uh, so both, for example, Citron and uh, Jeff Pulver company uh, started almost 10 years after I built the first gateway. Uh, Vonage, I think it was in circa 2003 or something like that. So it's 10 yeah. years after after I built the gateways and wrote the patents and everything else. Martin, uh, I built his first switch in 95, I think. Uh, so he was definitely there very early days. And, and he was operating like a commercial layer on top of your voice over IP long distance backbone, I guess, because his company was called well, Viatel, was, I think. He was selling yeah, minutes Via, with Viatel, like trash cards. Yeah, so Viatel was, uh, before it was based in London, it was based in Omaha and... Uh, he just had a call center that did callback service for Argentina and a few other countries. So most people don't know that, but uh, his business was callback, where basically it was half the price to call from the U.S. to Argentina, then from Argentina to the U.S., and he would basically give you a dial number, you would call it and hang up, and then the system in the U.S. called you and gave you a dial tone. And, uh, and then you could, dial your, yeah, you could dial your destination. And so in the beginning... We uh, provided callback service, and then we upgraded it to VoIP service. Um, so my company, back then it was called SmartNet, because uh, I didn't know that Cisco owned uh, the trademark for it. So then we had to change it to Arbonnet. Uh, yeah, the, and there's something uh, interesting in your, in your mindset on Arbonnet, yeah. actually, where, you know, in the case of, like, Martin, he had a very... Uh, let's see, like consumer-facing value proposition, save money on calls back home, and the, and the workflow was kind of like a pretty familiar workflow. He wasn't even building any fundamentally new technology. He was sort of, you yeah, know, yeah. I, I assume he was selling scratch cards, he's using your technology on the back end, he's using a regular call center, 
the user just dials some numbers into the phone. Like nothing radical has been reinvented, but of course it is a radical proposition to save someone lots of money. It's a huge consumer value creation. But w when I think about Arbanet, I think about two layers actually of complexity and what you undertook to do first is the basic technology. You're inventing a new technology to handle something where people have high expectations of quality. But the second one is you build a marketplace on top of that for the minutes. Yes. Is that in the same yes. company that you endeavor to do both? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we basically looked at, uh, I said to myself, okay, are, are, am I going to be able to compete uh, creating VoIP equipment with Cisco or Nortel or all the other companies that were kind of realized what we were doing and decided to stop selling traditional TDM switches and create VoIP switches, right? And we realized pretty quickly that they're going to basically just uh, outrun us, outspend us, and so on. And then we said, wait a second, all these phone companies all over the world, they're going to be VoIP companies. They're still going to need to settle with all the TDM companies, right? So there's going to be several thousand phone companies, VoIP companies. They're going to need to send traffic to AT&T and KDD and the other way around, they're going to need an exchange. They're going to need a clearing facility, both on the technology side as well as on the monetary side, because it's one thing, like AT&T used to only have like 120, 130 counterparties, right? One for each major country. Um, uh, but now suddenly they had 4,000 phone companies to deal with, right? The back office wasn't ready for that. So with Arbanet, uh, any phone company could plug in send all their traffic and we terminated it to the right party all over the world. We published the phone book basically for who holds what numbers because each phone company now started having their own phone numbers, right? So you didn't know when you dialed a number, just like in your old days, dial-up days, you didn't know if it was a Verizon, uh, Bell Atlantic number, a 9X number or whatever. Uh, so the same problem existed on the international level. And at the peak, we handled more than 10% of all the traffic in the world through some of the world's largest uh, phone switches ever built. Uh, like the one, the biggest one we had was a uh, 75 Broad Street, and September 11th, uh, the AT&T switch went down because it was in the towers. The Verizon switch went down because it was next door, and all the Northeast ran through our switches. Basically, we had the we had the FBI guard our building because uh, if we, we if we went down, all the communications for like I don't know 12 or 13 states would basically Incredible. go down. Incredible. So, uh, Incredible. And the funny thing is we were running on generators and like after two days I went to the FBI and said, look, I need to bring a diesel truck south of 14th Street. And they started laughing at me. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. If we if we don't bring it down, the whole Northeast is going to stop having phone service. And they're like, what are you talking about? So, <laughs> uh, so we got a special permit and then we were added to this critical, the FBI has like a critical list of uh, facilities. So they actually added us to that list. Uh, so now, after that, anything that happened, they were immediately in our facility to guard it. So, that's uh, incredible, Alex. That's so inter yeah. interesting. I mean, the theme that I'm exploring with you, and it's sort of different for each of the people that I get to come on in the know, but there's a couple themes I want to explore with you. And, and one of them is, I mean, the big broad one in general is, I want to find out how other people think about making something small into something big and how you... Yep chart the course for that journey, whether it's an idea or like taking this podcast series that I've been doing and turning it into some massive media business or some other variation. And there's a couple things going on in your in your version of the Arbonnet story, which are really interesting. And one uh, that I want to get your take on is how audacious your vision is at this point in like the mid 90s, let's say, as you're starting to make the switches and you're evolving towards the business and you're like, holy crap, the whole world is going to move in this direction. 
So I'm not even going to try to make the switches anymore. I'm going to cede that territory to someone else. I'm going to skip three three layers forward and operate yeah. the, the 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 telex or the telephone exchange or whatever those things are called. Um, the clearing, which is the not just fundamental technology, not just backbone. Yeah, and then the clearing and then the financial market on top of it to buy and sell all the capacity, which other people might then supply into the marketplace too, right? Because it wasn't just your backbone. Yeah, so we, we basically, look, we gave the, the VoIP technology for free to everybody. We didn't charge, we didn't, even though we held the patents and wrote the protocol, we, get, we basically gave it to everyone to use because more adoption of VoIP meant more transactions going to Arbinet. And Arbinet effectively became the monopoly uh, of clearing all of that traffic, right? So our, in this case, our end game came to be uh, and uh, we went public and we were worth 1.7 billion at the peak and we handled 10% of all the traffic in the world, right? And we basically wiped out, I mean, AIG put $200 million to compete with us, the, the insurance company, right? To create a competing marketplace out of their venture business. And uh, they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't get anything done, right? Global Crossing was competing with us. We had these huge competitors who were spending hundreds of millions, uh, 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 Enron. Enron offered to buy the company for over $200 million. And, you know, I remember flying on, on Skilling's private plane to Houston to meet with them and, and uh, kind of like trying to convince him that it wasn't about the bandwidth, it was about the voice, because he was all gung-ho on bandwidth. And I was like, you're not gonna make any money there. And uh, so we, we didn't agree on strategy and I walked away from the deal and they, uh, they announced bandwidth, uh, Enron bandwidth the next day and the stock doubled. And I thought like, I felt like an idiot. And two years later, they were out of business, you know, so uh, <laughs> liquidated, right? So, so it, it's, it's not a straight path. It's not like you set a strategy and, and everything just executes and the dominoes fall in a row and, and you end up being a billionaire. That's not how it works. You know, you, you stare at the abyss every few months. Let's put it that way. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the vision that you laid out that that worked, and I, I assume there was some stomach churning along the way, like that moment when Enron says, "Screw it, we're not going to do the deal with you," and then they launch something that is colossally valued in the right. market the next day. Like there, there are moments of intense doubt or uncertainty or confrontation. You must have investors coming after you, but. There's another thing too, which is you have this audacious, audacious vision and you're moving towards it, but sometimes, um, maybe sometimes you're too early. Like you, you didn't you just didn't you start Uber ten years before Uber or seven years before Uber? Yes. Yeah, so, so that's a great example, and thanks for bringing up my failures into light. You know, like, <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. So Uber, you know, like uh, so I started a company called Ground Link. Uh, still around, still services more cities than Uber. Uh, in 2003, right? So that was about uh, five or six years before Uber was even uh, founded. Uh, when Uber was just in San Francisco, we were serving over 5,000 airports around the world. So basically every major airport, you could take an app, open it, order ground transportation, and, uh, you know, it was there within an hour. It wasn't instant, but it was there within an hour. And, uh, Which was the, the, the customary amount of time back in those days, right? I mean, when you wanted to order a car to yeah. do an airport pickup, you'd order it, like, before the flight or even the day before or something. It was, it was Exactly. Everything was advanced reservation. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, but we we also launched uh, in I think it was eight cities. We were on demand. So, like in New York, for example, we had over 500 vehicles, and you could get a car in less than 10 minutes. And but what we didn't do is we didn't subsidize the ride, right? So in New York, a ride uh, anywhere in the city was at 20 to 30 dollars, and and I remember Uber kind of launching in San Francisco and me going to my investors. So I already had probably like 70 million in revenues. I raised over $50 million in, in equity uh, from venture guys. And going back to my investor, the CEO of the company, you know, founder, and, and telling them, look, we got to cut prices dramatically because we need to compete with this on-demand thing. And they were like, no, you don't understand. It's just San Francisco. These guys are never going to raise money. So I got on a plane, I went and I sat in front of Bill Gurley a week before investing in Uber, right? Because I know him for a while and pitched him on Groundlink, which was a thousand times bigger than Uber, right? Uh, and, you know, basically he obviously decided not to invest in us because he thought that we, uh, Groundlink, uh, you could order by phone, you could order by email, you could order by, with an app. And by SMS. So we had every form of order. We had customer service. You could actually call and talk to someone. And, and uh, Uber just did what they do now, right? And, and he basically looked at me and said, look, they're here. They're local. They're a pure play. You're not. I'm going with uh, Uber, you know, and uh, obviously he made the Is right that- decision, but yep. Well, maybe not. I mean, maybe he should have gone heavy into Groundlink, but I wonder if that's the sum total of the way Gurley would have described his decision then. I mean, because the way you set it out, it's like you're way ahead of them. You're way bigger. You're much more money moving through way more platforms or interfaces or whatever for ordering the cars. And to you, these are important virtues or advantages that you had over them. Can it can it just be that he was like, yeah, well, they're local, so I'm going to pick these guys? Or, or would he put it differently yeah, if, so, if you really pressed him? So, yeah, it, it, I'm not saying local was the only reason, but uh, if you talk to VCs, they tell you that they they want to be within 20 minutes of their companies. And, uh, you know, they look, Travis, who was the CEO of Uber at the time, failed in his 10 first startups. Okay, there's public information. You can look it up on the internet. So he lost all the money for all of his investors 10 times in a row. Okay. I had several billion dollars in exits when I was sitting in front of uh, Bill Gurley, including two companies that Bill missed investing in when I pitched him on them. So, so there was no question that I was a more uh, capable and uh, entrepreneur with, with a better track record than Travis, right? And at the time, uh, Uber did not yet uh, basically slash their prices dramatically because the Lyft wasn't yet in the picture. They started slashing their prices when Lyft came to San Francisco because I think they were from Seattle originally or whatever. And then they basically saw how much adoption they got. And they said, wow, this idea of losing money on every ride is a genius idea. Let's just scale that and we, we'll make it up in volume. And 10 years later, with <laughs> $12 billion in losses, they still haven't figured out what the business model is, right? So, so we, we had a profitable business. It was growing at 35% per year, but we were not losing money. And uh, uh, so that, anyway, my point is there's a lot of reasons, but you, you're welcome to call Bill Gurley and ask him, I appreciate I appreciate hearing from a hard nosed competitor um, 
your take on on their business. And I think there's a lot of people who share your view. I'm, I'm very sure of that. I wonder, though, if you contrast the situation with Groundlink well, my point and is, Arbonnet. Yeah, but let me make but a punchline. So the punchline yeah. was that we, because we started in 2003 and we went through the 2007 and eight recession, uh, being seen in a limo, uh, I don't mean the stretch limo, just a private car with Little a driver. Black car. In, black car in 2008 was in New York. If you lived in New York, that was like a no-no. That was a ba- very bad thing. In San Francisco, somehow they called it uh, ride-sharing. It has nothing to do with ride-sharing. The guy that comes to you with his car is not sharing his car with you. He's just a, a, a taxi replacement, you know, so... We, uh, so, uh, um, Groundlink did not own a single vehicle. We were, they basically copied us 100%. They just subsidized every ride and we didn't. So, and these were hard lessons to learn. I can tell you, I went through a major, I had to disassemble myself into like the atomic level and reassemble myself because I was like close to clinical depression, seeing like how they stole it from my hand. Like this guy had the whole thing. I had the next big thing. Uber is the fastest value creation in history. It created more value faster than eBay, faster than Microsoft, faster than Google, faster than any other company in history. So having had that years ahead of anyone else and having have ceded it to someone who, again, uh, um, failed in his first 10 ventures, that was like the, the worst scenario possible, right? So that was a very painful, visceral experience. And uh, so when I decided to do the next venture, I had to do a lot of soul searching as to how, why, when, and, and make sure that it doesn't happen again. Okay, tell me how, why, when it doesn't happen again. It sounds like a really so, powerful experience. I mean, and, and just so that, I, let's see if I'm listening correctly, like Arbonet, you invent some stuff, you see the vision of how the world's going to go. You know there's going to be a ton of competitors. You make this auda- audacious leap to like the ninth level. You give away your technology for free to power the platform business that you seek to create, right? So sometimes people and, and are too raised, early. Right, and I raised the most money. So we raised over $300 million back in the 90s, which is probably a few billion dollars today, uh, equivalent. Uh, so raising the most money was critical pieces. Here, uh, I should have not listened to any of my uh, current investors and went and raised all the money in the world. Uh, to make sure that we leapfrog ahead of Uber, you know, so we didn't do So the that. next time around, you had an equally powerful innovation on your hands, uh, and perhaps because some of the other people around you, you didn't pursue a similarly audacious move. And I guess, you know, you, you were pointing out what that is, like raise lots of money, subsidize the rides, build the greatest density in some of these markets, just go toe-to-toe with these guys and crush them. Which was, which was the, and, and maybe even give away the tools, you know, give away, uh, create a, a bigger ecosystem, which is what you did in the ARPANET. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, so and, and it was hard to, it was hard to see with the Uber situation, it was hard to see that that was a sustainable business model. I mean, I thought that maybe they'll do it for a year, maybe for two years, definitely not for a decade, right? Uh, and um, uh, basically, but that's now the model, the modus operandi in, in, in the in the Bay Area, right? I mean, they basically it doesn't matter if you doesn't matter if you're a ma- mattress company or a shaving company or whatever. They'll subsidize the cost forever until somebody comes and buys it for a few billion dollars. 
So well, you have certainly uh, thought a lot about Uber, and I bet you thought about Lyft. And you're saying they yeah. they lose money on every ride. You probably don't mean they literally lose money on every ride. They lose yeah, money. They lose money. The average of all rides. No, Uber uh, lost two billion dollars in 2018. Lyft lo- lost almost one billion dollars in, in 2018, and on two billion in revenues. Lyft lo- lost fifty cents on every dollar that they built. Like it's it's crazy losses. I mean, people just people that buy into that I, uh, IPO don't understand what they're buying into. So, but you, you know the business really prices. well. Do you think there yeah. are some cities where they do make money and other cities where they don't make money, or some types of rides like long rides that make a lot of money? Or there's got to be I'm some sure, segmentation in there. I'm sure there are some rides that make money on. But my point mm-hmm. is that there, if you lose money on average on every transaction. And yeah. your annual numbers, you lose money uh, in the billions. On, uh, uh, you, you're not making money. It's not like if, if you know Uber. I think had 11 billion in revenues. They lost two billion dollars on 11 in revenues. And that's not something you can fix like in a second, right? No. Uh, yeah. Lyft yes, yeah. lost. Lyft lost 900 million on two billion in revenue. That's that's huge losses. Not again. If they raise their prices, Uber just takes away the customers because customers could care less. The minute you raise your prices, they move to somebody else, including to Groundlink, right? Uh, so, mm-hmm. so there's like ten competitors. Uh, uh, you have, uh, a, uh, you know, in New York at least, you have uh, a bunch of a bunch of different companies that are willing to immediately come in and give you these services for low prices, right? Juno and uh, you name it, right? And mm-hmm. even the taxi companies now offer all this stuff, Via and this and that and so on. Is there a rational vertical yep. or a rational sub-segment? I mean, you know the business really well. You built and scaled an important business in the area. And looking outside in at these guys and from their disclosures, is there like a rational part of this business somewhere in there? And could it be run separately or you just have to run it in this big, giant, money-losing machine? Right. So in New York, uh, Uber now has something like 60,000 vehicles. And there's only 12,000 taxis, right, in New York City, or 13,000 taxis. So uh, basically, the average speed in New York City was cut in half during the period that Uber basically scaled the operation of the city. The average ride, it's published by the city, that number. So basically, all the traffic in the city dropped by half and went from like 11, from 11 miles an hour to something like five, six miles an hour over the last 10 years, only because there's so many more cars circling on the streets, congesting the traffic. So the net benefit, now because people are subsidizing the ride, because these companies are subsidizing the ride, less people use subway, less people use the the buses, uh, because you can go across town for $5, right? So so uh, so I think, you know, like I said, the net benefit is negative. What I try to do, if you look at VoIP or you look at, me putting wireless in the subways or or Celsius, everything I try to do, I try to do it cheaper, better, faster, right? So so the net outcome at the end is that the mass the masses benefit uh, from these services and and everybody wins, right? Obviously somebody has to lose, but uh, but like in in the Celsius case, it's the banks. In the phone companies' case, it's the monopolies. So those are good outcomes, right? Uh, here, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that subsidizing millennials' rides uh, to and from the bars and to and from work 
is necessarily a better outcome from, for society. So I just don't see this as a sustainable business model. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Alex, talk to me about Celsius, uh, what you've been up to over the last couple of years. Uh, I guess it's an Ethereum-based uh, project or platform. Um, and, and, and tell me about your, your new audacious vision. Yes. So, so the, you know, the crypto revolution is now just over 10 years old, right? Bitcoin is about 10 years old. The blockchain is about 30 years old. Most, uh, most people don't know that it was invented in 1991 by, uh, uh, two guys. One, one is named Scott Storneda and, and another guy named Hubbard who basically wrote the first uh, Merkle tree blockchain. And so we, we, and you look at 30 years later and there is no killer app. There isn't a single thing that you can point at and say, wow, this is really changing the world. It's making it a better place, right? So there's 2000 ICOs, there's 200 different blockchains, but none of them kind of like, if you look at the internet, you have several big winners, right? That we all know. And we can point at them and very clearly say, wow, look at these companies. They made, they, they really changed the world, right? So. So we kind of, as an, I, I've held coins since 2013. I've, I've invested in a bunch of different projects. So when I looked at the blockchain more carefully and said, okay, what is the killer app here? Uh, I came to the realization that we really need to take one service or two services that are not working well today for most of the people on the planet and use this infrastructure to deliver those services. And we decided, uh, Daniel Rowan and me, uh, my co-founder, decided to focus on lending and borrowing. I think there isn't a single person on the planet that can say, I, I, I do not want to earn more interest on my assets, right? I mean, most of the world is either less than 1% or negative rate. And uh, the same, the opposite is true as well, meaning uh, every borrower there isn't a borrower on the planet that can that can say, oh, I, I want to pay more for my loans, right? So, so if you look at the financial institutions that dominate our lives, the banks, the, the credit card companies, the um, you know the broker dealers, and all these guys, they're all very efficient toll collectors. So the bank will take your deposit when you get your paycheck or you get a, any kind of uh, capital, will pay you less than one percent 
turn around and lend me your money. It's not the bank's money, it's your money. Lend it to me on my credit card and charge me 25% on average, right? That's the average credit card rate in the United States. So there's a $1.3 trillion in outstanding debt in the US. The average is 25%, do the math. And that's how JP Morgan last year made 30 billion in profit, right? On 131 billion in revenues. So they're very efficient toll collectors. They give you almost nothing and they keep 90% of the value that is created with your money. So we said to ourselves, why can't we do exactly the opposite? Why can't we take value, uh, lend it to somebody on the other side, charge half, charge 9% instead of 18 or 20 or 25, and pay 7% of that back to the depositor? And we really have seen no problem why we can't do that, right? So, so today, JP Morgan can pay you 7% for your deposit. There's no economic or... Uh, technical or business reason or legal reasons why they're not paying 7%. The only reason is that they don't have to, right? You give them your money for free or for less than 1%, and if you're really sophisticated and you lock it up for two years, you'll get 2% or 1.9% or whatever the rate is today. So it's still a fraction of what they're making with your money. So Celsius. So how does it work using blockchain for this borrowing, like uh, storing, borrowing, lending? Yep, so it's a very simple process. So we have a wallet on your phone. You can download it from the App Store, Celsius Network, and in it there is uh, 16 different uh, coins and tokens that we support. So if you have Bitcoin, you can deposit Bitcoin and you just start earning interest on your Bitcoin. So right now, for example, the interest on Bitcoin is 5.1%. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to move it from a savings account to a checking account or sign contracts or do anything. You keep it there for a day, you earn interest for a day. You keep it there for a year, you earn the full 5.1% uh, for the year. We pay interest every Monday. And if you have Ethereum, same thing for Ethereum, you get more Ethereum in your wallet. We also support six different stable coins. So you can take your dollars from JP Morgan, convert them into, for example, USDT or TUSD or uh, PAX, these are all stable coins, meaning they're pegged to the dollar. So you know for sure you're gonna get your dollars back. And while they're on deposit with us, uh, you'll earn 7.1%. Why? Because we lend them out at 9%. Uh, we only and you lend, lend them out, in coins? We lend out uh, USDC, for example, uh, which is a stable coin, at 9% against collateral. So. On the other side of the table here, or I should say on the other side of the coin, is a borrower who comes and says, I have $1,000 in Bitcoin, can I borrow $500 in stablecoin? So we only do up to 50% LTV, uh, loan-to-value ratio, and so there's very little risk for the lender. And this is not peer-to-peer. -peer. This is all of our, all of our uh, depositors pulled together, and from that pool, we lend out, uh, so you don't have to worry about any individual defaulting. So then why crypto? Why is, why is it crypto? Why don't you just do it with, with money, with the dollars? Right. So, 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 so this, the service I just described uh, works globally, meaning a, a, a farmer from Vietnam can put $10, and we can pay him interest in Satoshis on the $10, and we don't have to pay Visa or MasterCard or do a wire transfer or anything else. So... So we can scale this to billions of people around the planet and still have a very, very efficient uh, mechanism because we pay interest only once a week. We don't load up the 
the blockchain and clog it down to with to tons hold, of transactions. Right? But because the the blockchain platform is quote unquote free or cheaper to operate by the peers who are on it, it reduces the cost which JP Morgan I guess spends billions to run of their financial right, so they, fraud detection clearinghouse, data center, backup storage, all that. Is the idea yeah, people they, are sort of they, bringing their own internet? Yeah, and they and they intentionally keep transaction prices high because that's how they make all their money, right? So so why Visa Mastercard charge three percent? Because you know that's what that's almost like the le- the the point of friction, uh, the best point of friction where they can charge the most possible before uh, anyone can compete with them. But it's possible so, to see this latest venture of yours in the lens of actually your other communications type ventures. Like you could look at the world of banking and lending as actually a kind of telecommunications monopoly where financial it's a monopoly, information yes. is centralized yeah, and routed through yeah. these very big dedicated financial, a financial internet call it, uh, which for various reasons we the sucker consumers believe only they can do. Now we have a, a crypto set of platforms and you want to deploy on there a much lower clearing cost. You've got make it. it yeah, cheaper you've... to borrow, better to, to lend, exactly. and smaller and pay rates literally... and stuff. Right, and these guys literally run on mainframe computers. Like when it's you know the joke, like the the joke, you know the, these monopolies run on mainframe. Well, these guys actually run on mainframes from the sixties and seventies. They still I have know my uncle is a mainframe basement. engineer. <laughs> he's a mainframe engineer for JP for the last thirty years. Exactly, he's, he's yeah, one so of those guys maintaining. Exactly. So we we are all we're saying is. Just like Void completely decimated the phone network and the phone network became an application on the internet, the same way money, right, will be decimated. This whole concept of SWIFT networks and IBAN and all kind of proprietary private networks that are only accessible to the elite of the elite to fly on their private jets and make 50 million a year could be replaced with the peer-to-peer network that is accessible accessible to every person on the planet, which bypasses all these toll collectors. Just like AT&T was just a toll collector charging you $3 a minute for something that was free. So, so, and so all I'm saying is that money or transfer of money or store of value is going to become an application on the blockchain. That's all it is. It's just an application this on the blockchain. This is certainly one of the biggest uh, ideas that I've heard on on blockchain. I will grant you that. And I want to ask you now to contrast, though, uh, the way you ran the game plan on Arbanet, the way you talked me through how you ran the plan on Groundlink and on some of the things you might have done differently. Um, what's the game plan this time? So the game plan is very simple. Give back to your depositors as much as possible. If you do that, they, they will come and they will come in hordes, meaning the, the problem, the main, and you know, I've done at least a hundred public speeches saying this, right? In, in every crypto conference and on podcasts and AMAs, and I keep saying the same thing, and people are just not hearing it. There is no chance that the, that the crypto community is going to scale into the hundreds of millions of, of people or billions of people if all we can do with coins is throw them at each other. Because that's what we're doing right now. We have 25 million users. That, those are the early adopters. We ran out of early adopters, right? And, and, and uh, we have to hand off the baton to the next uh, uh, level of adoption. And the, the next level, the mass adoption, you know, we, we're stuck in that chasm, right? Crossing the chasm. 
The next level of adoption is looking for a real application. They're looking for something that they can actually use every day. Okay. This and is certainly one of them, and this is certainly one of them. And saving people money or paying them so much money for their money seems like the kind of transformational value proposition. The game plan when you were come. sketching they're, Arbonnet, but at Arbonnet you raised the most money. A ground link. You regret not having uh, partners who are ready to go that aggressively. You had competitors in the ground link days who were subsidizing and losing money per transaction, and they're still losing money. But on paper, the equity is is massively valuable. Are are there parallels from that that that, that you have in mind in in what you're going to deploy now? Yes. So so here, um, we actually get value, right? I mean, people depositing value with us. And we have to create alpha. We have to create return. We don't charge any fees. We don't charge a deposit fee, a storage fee, uh, withdrawal fees, even though a lot of our competitors do. Right? Well, most of our competitors have fees associated with the services. We don't charge any fees, no termination fee, no late termination fee or early termination fee or any fee. Okay, since we launched, we haven't charged a single penny in fees. So we're saying if you deposit coins with us, we will create alpha, we'll create a return, and we will, we will give back to our community 80% of what we created, right? So if we, what, the rate we publish, so for example, the 7.1% that we publish on stablecoin is because we're lending enough dollars at 9%. And if you do the math, you take a calculator, do what is 80% of 9, it's 7.15%. That's what we pay. So Amazing. That's, Amazing. That it's very, very simple. It's the opposite of what banks do. Now, if we do that properly, then instead of the $100 million that we have on deposit now from about 70,000 people from all over the world, we, will, we may have $100 billion on deposit from 70 million people around the world. That is the <laughs> idea. I think you will. I think you will. Alex, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. That was really great. Again, what... One call to action for your listeners, you know, that if they really believe in this, they need to go and bring 10 of their friends. It doesn't matter if they bring it to Celsius or somewhere else, but they need to show them that there is an alternative to this banking uh, monopolistic behavior. Uh, that oh, Alex, all we I'm, got I'm, from I, am moving, I am moving my coins from uh, Coinbase to Celsius. I can give you that endorsement. You've convinced yes. me. I've been looking at the app as we've been talking. It is very clear. There's no reason to be leaving this. And somebody else. Yeah, so, so that, that, but that's the hard part. The hard part is winning the trust. You know, the banks spend the last 700 years since Banco de Pachi was created in, in, in Siena convincing all of us, like you said before, that there's no alternative. And, and, and we are so stuck in that mindset that it's very hard for people to look at this and say, oh, this is a scam. It's another Madoff. His last name is just Mashinsky, you know? And I'm like, no, I can explain <laughs> to you how we're making the return. And, and we, we, starting in May, we will publish all of our transactions on the blockchain, meaning we're going to be the first fully transparent institution that anyone, even if you're not a depositor of ours, can go and see exactly how much did we get on deposit, how much did we lend out, what did we collect in interest, did we give most of it back to the community. You can audit us all day long, every day, 365 days a week, a year. So, Amazing. And, and Alex, sense, let's leave it there. Let's leave yep. it there. Perfect. Thank you so much. Bye. Take care. Bye.